Okay, before we move on into chapter seven, uh, we were working through Matthew 30, uh, 24, and uh, because it coincides with the content of Revelation chapter six and the opening of the sixth seal. And we got to verse 36 of Matthew 24 last week, and it says, but of that day and hour no man knoweth, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And this John Stephen, who was with us, I don't know if, is he back there? John Stephen last week, he, he, uh, he said, well, this passage is somewhat spurious, and uh, because the phrase, neither the uh, no man knoweth, has been added, he suggested, over the years by those who sought to malign the deity of Christ. And so we had a discussion then, and the text has always presented difficulties because to people who um, believe Jesus is God in the flesh, fully God with us, they've always said, if that's the case and he had divine nature, how come he couldn't say that he knew the hour and the day, but he would say here, no man knows the, uh, the hour of the day, but my father only. And so in response, um, people have said that no man and neither the son has been added to the manuscript evidence over the years. There's a man called Ambrose, St. Ambrose, back in like 480 AD, and he was the one who said he was a great resistor to Arian, who was a proponent of Christ not having, not being fully divine and uh, anti-Trinitarian. And Ambrose fought against Arian, and it was Ambrose who said, the original manuscripts are lacking this phrase, neither the son or no man. Um, and so uh, it was Ambrose who popularized the idea that neither the son is being inserted into the text. But scholars today, unfortunately for my brother John, uh, say there's little doubt that the passage uh, has been manipulated and is spurious and that it reads as what Jesus said. Uh, the trouble or the proof of that comes in Mark 13, 32, because this passage uh, has no question as to its complete authenticity in the Greek manuscripts. And it says, has Jesus say, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father, and that passage is completely uncontested. So what, it, uh, what it, people are saying is that Matthew's is contested. There are places where the phrase no man knows aren't in the original manuscript for Matthew, but they are in all the original manuscripts that neither the son knows in for Mark uh, 1332. So there's really no dispute on the passage whatsoever, to, whatsoever relative to additions or subtractions, even with men like Ambrose, uh, because even if they're correct and the Matthew passage has been altered some way, um, and that's a debate, and I'm gonna cover that really quickly in a second, the Mark 13 reference has not been in question ever, and that one says, neither the son, only the father knows the hour of the day. Getting back to Matthew 24, 36, however, there are more than a dozen instances where Matthew has taken the content of Mark and has softened it relative to the deity of Christ. And so where Mark will say things like what uh, he says there in, Ma in Mark 13, 32, Matthew will soften it in the manuscript accounts that we have from Matthew. And, uh, we never see the reverse though. We never see something Matthew says and Mark, which is, which is presumably the uh, original source that many of the apostles apparently relied upon or looked to, Mark never does the reverse. So since Mark 13 instance, the passage is undisputed in manuscript evidence. And since the external evidence to support that Matthew was massaged over the years, not with the insertion of the material, but with the removal of the material. So John's postulation last week was, listen, this passage 
has been manipulated. People have inserted neither the son or no man into that passage when in fact people have in the manuscript proof removed neither the son or uh, no man. And so uh, it's actually really from what everyone says, uh, it's the opposite of information being added to Matthew. It is information has been removed. And that would um, definitely be in concert with what we've discovered with uh, the Great Commission comment and uh, the Johannine comma comment in 1 John 5, where we see Trinitarian influence has slipped in and manipulated certain passages a little bit to make us think one thing or another. Even Bruce, Bruce Metzger, he is uh, one of the world's preeminent New Testament scholars says, and I'll quote, the omission of the words in Matthew 24, 36, because of doctrinal difficulty is more probable than the addition of the words. So I hope that makes sense. Take it for what it's worth. Um, I printed up, it's about a seven page document. It's in the back and, and for anybody who wants it, that gives you a more, uh, it's really pretty kind of difficult to understand because it goes into all the Greek, but it explains this a little bit better. But the question remains, if no man, even the son, knew the hour or the day, but only the father, then when is the father going to reveal the information of when all this stuff is going to happen? That's really the question. And I would suggest that the father is revealing what and when everything is going to happen through the book of Revelation, that this is the father's revelation to Christ, that Christ is giving the revelation to John. It's Christ's revelation of what the unfolding of everything is going to look like that he was talking about in Matthew 24. So we have covered the opening of the first six seals, and we've covered what they mean or could mean from the four different views, primarily from the preterist or the futurist views, and a little bit from the historists and the other views. But in chapter seven, that's where we are today, the state of things represent here seem to be a gap between chapter six and the opening of the sixth seal and the opening of the seventh seal, which is covered in chapter eight. Chapter seven <coughs> seems to be a uh, period of peace. It's a time for a take a breath. And so what is said in chapter seven fits in between the content of chapter six and chapter eight. So uh, in chapter seven, the state of things uh, represent, represented a period of time when after the sixth seal of destruction was unleashed, that would appear at the end of that age, there's gonna be a period of time where God is trying to reach all people. And he is going to try to hold off destruction so that he can find or get or mark those who are his. And this is before the opening of the seventh seal when everything is done. And that occurs again in chapter eight. So this is symbolized God holding back the destruction that's going to come here in the uh, seventh chapter by four angels standing on the four quarters of the earth, corners of the earth, and holding back the wind that would not just blow on the earth, but it would bring about all the destruction that has been prophesied of and spoken of going all the way back to Ezekiel and, and Daniel, and of course, Matthew, and then now in Revelation. So the idea is that sudden destruction was gonna burst upon the land, it would be unrestrained, it would bring about the consummation of all things. But here in chapter seven, for his purposes, God has commanded angels to hold it back. So we have that period of peace. It's a window of peace so that he can give those who are his a mark in their forehead is what it says. He gives all of them a mark and we're gonna talk about that. So in this, we see or experience a disclosing of the glorious vision of those who will be saved among the Jews and the Gentiles at the coming of Christ. So to be clear, the end of the age does not come at the opening of the sixth seal. When we read the contents of the sixth seal, it sounds like this is happening right then. But when we read the contents, it was telling us what would happen, but it wasn't telling us that in chronological order. Because now we come to a space of what would happen before the contents of the sixth seal would occur. 
So chapter seven is this space of peace when right before the contents of the sixth seal would occur, God is going to get and save all those who are his by putting the mark in their forehead. The number of the chosen was apparently not complete at this time, and therefore the impending wrath was suspended in chapter seven and will resume at the opening of chapter eight. So just the book of Revelation can be tough because we wanna read it like we would read a chronological novel, and it's not. It gives us information, and that information will say, wow, the sixth seal is just utter destruction. But then after that, we have this period of rest that would have taken place before the coming destruction. And so you have to remember that as you go through and read it. Um, the sixth seal, we read the impending ruin was about to spread over the land, bringing the consummation of all things. But here it's restrained, held back by the four powerful angels. Then in verse two and three, it informs us that the suspension of these desolating influences would be until the angels would hold back the destruction until God had sealed all those who are his with the mark in the forehead. And this is what it says. And then we're going to meet another angel in verses two and three of chapter seven. And he kind of has power to command the other angels that are holding back the destruction. And he or it appears in the east. I say it because angels angelos and it could be a messenger. This angel comes and has having the seal of the living God, he directs the four angels holding back the destruction to not let these destructions loose upon the earth until all the servants of God have been sealed with in their forehead is what it refers to. So this obviously means the suspension of the impending wrath and for a specific purpose, the true servants of God are gonna be marked. Now you're gonna to have to decide, is that a literal mark? Are people gonna walk around with a stamp literally on their forehead in this time before Christ comes? Or is it a figurative, spiritual mark? I'm going to try to petition you to believe it's the latter and not a literal mark in the forehead, but we'll talk about why when we get there. Whatever would serve to designate them as the elect or the ones who are given the mark, we aren't told. We aren't, say, we aren't told it's because of their faith or their righteousness. Uh, we're just told that they're going to be receive this mark. And once they do, they will be protected when the angels let go of the destructing forces that come in upon the land. Now, the number of the sealed is covered in Revelation chapter seven, verses four through eight. We are fortunate enough to have in our midst someone who has a relative who is one of those 144,000. Just kidding. But uh, the, the seer, he doesn't present himself as actually holding the process of sealing, but he says that he heard. This is the number that would be sealed. He heard this. He doesn't see it. He hears that this is the number. And that number is 144,000, right? And, and, and the thing that's often lost in this is that they were selected from the 12 tribes of the children of Israel, as we are going to see. They were selected from the 12 tribes, literal 12 tribes at that time who were uh, uh, on earth from the nation of Israel. Um, and that would include Levi and his tribe who's included usually not numbered with the 12 tribes, and to the exclusion of Dan and Ephraim. Dan and Ephraim, the tribes of Dan and Ephraim are not mentioned here in Revelation. So we'll explain why that is. Uh, well, we'll just try it now. Where is Dan and Ephraim? How come they're not included in the tribes here? Dan seems to have been replaced in the list by Manasseh. And we aren't totally sure why Dan is left out of having representatives from that tribe among the 144,000, but there are some possibilities that we get from scripture. For instance, Dan had difficulty taking possession of their territory given to them. You can read about that in Joshua 19 and Judges 18. Uh, Dan took an ephod uh, or other household gods, carved an image, created an idol. You read about that in Judges 18. Uh, Dan attacked and overcame a peaceful and unsuspecting people and took their land. So, and then also Dan set up idols for their own priests in a new city. That's in, in, in uh, Judges 2. So we also know that King uh, Jeroboam 
in 1 Kings 12, set up two golden calves in Bethel and in Dan, which became a sin, and the people of Dan went to worship there before this. So it could be that because of their hot-headedness, their violence upon unsuspecting people, their idol worship, all sustained by Old Testament records, Dan is left out of the 144,000 who were resealed, who, who of those tribes would receive the seal in their forehead and be protected from the winds coming in. If that is what you maintain, then um, Dan's choices as a tribe would trump the promises of God. I don't necessarily believe that's the case. So I think there could be another reason why Dan isn't mentioned. As for Ephraim, he was one of Joseph's sons. Ephraim blessed, uh, Joseph blessed Ephraim and put him ahead of his brother Manasseh uh, in Genesis 48, so Jacob did. So uh, meaning Ephraim received J Joseph's birthright. And for all intents and purposes, then Ephraim is hidden in the tribe of Joseph that is mentioned in Revelation. So Ephraim is included, is just mentioned under the name Joseph, and that would make sense. Uh, however, there are those who think Ephraim is excluded too because of their wickedness. And I'll give you a position that endorses this, and it's in Psalm 78. It says, the men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. He did miracles in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the region of Zoan. He divided the sea and led them through. He made the water stand firm like a wall. He guided them by the cloud by day and with the light fire at all night. He split the rocks in the desert and gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of the craggy rock and made water flow down like rivers. But they continued to sin against them, rebelling in the desert against the Most High. Then the Lord woke from sleep as a man wakes from a stupor of wine. He beat back his enemies. He put them into everlasting shame. Then he rejected the tents of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. That's in Psalm 78, uh, uh, 9 through 17. So there we have an imprecation or a curse placed upon Ephraim in scripture because of their failures. Uh, Hosea 5, 9 and 11 says, Ephraim will be laid waste on the day of reckoning. That's a quote. Uh, among the tribes of Israel, I proclaim what is certain. Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. So um, there's some evidence that possibly Ephraim isn't hidden in the line of Joseph in the book of Revelation in naming the 144,000. And Ephraim was excluded because of unrighteousness. There's another consideration. I know we try to cover it all here. And in this heat, it can get a little irritating. But in Judges 18, we read how five warriors from the tribe of Dan entered into the hill country of Ephraim. So now we're combining things. Five warriors, tribe of Dan, enter into the hill country of Ephraim. And the remainder of that chapter appears to have taken place within the territory of Ephraim. And so the belief is Dan was assimilated into the tribe of Ephraim. It therefore could be that in the list of the 144,000, maybe Dan is directly mixed in with Ephraim and Ephraim is mixed in with Joseph. And that then would cover all of God's promises to redeem the elect out of those tribes. And no promise would be broken by God and the failures of the tribe of Dan and Ephraim wouldn't be taken into account. If this is the case, perhaps the 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Joseph includes Ephraimites and Danites. Whatever the case, the number from each tribe, large or small, 12 sons of Jacob was the same, 12,000. You take 12,000 people from a tribe, you multiply it by 12 tribes, you get 144,000. Now, rarely does a thousand mean a thousand in scripture. So <clears throat> I, would uh, I would caution against uh, scriptural literalism here. 144,000, as humans, we love this stuff and we like to say this is a certain thing, but we have proven time and again that to the Hebrews, 
A thousand did not mean a thousand. It was a representative number, like a kid saying, I got a bajillion uh, uh, jelly beans here. He doesn't have a bajillion. He has a certain amount. He has a lot. That's what a thousand was to the Jews. So 12,000 from each tribe exactly on the nose uh, being uh, protected and these end times amounting to 144,000 on the nose. They're representative numbers. And when we start to get dogmatic and say, okay, uh, you know, there's 11,999 picked, we need one more. It's just not the way God works in scripture. They're symbolic figures. Uh, the general idea here is that is therefore that there would be a selection from every tribe. There's going to be a selection of those who were righteous by God for faith. It's almost always by faith from Abraham down through Jesus and Paul. It's almost always been by faith. And so there's going to be a group of them who by faith prove themselves and they will receive this mark to protect them against the confluence of wind that's going to come in and destroy the area. After all that talk in verses 9 through 17, another vision presents itself. It is a, a countless multitude before the throne, redeemed out of all nations now with palms in their hands. And this is a scene where we get moved from the 144,000 into heaven. And uh, we'll talk all about that. And uh, it seems to be indicative of all saved over the course of human history. These are all who were protected, but we'll talk and see if that's, it's hard to say. We'll see once we get there. And we continue on and we'll get into those other passage specifics later, but let's read verses one of chapter seven through, uh, well, you know, just for time's sake, let's read one through two. <laughs> no, let's read through it all because it's our first time in chapter seven. So let's read what the content says. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel descending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of, all the of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephilim were... Uh, were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed 12,000 tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000 tribe of Levi, which are usually almost always excluded from such things were sealed 12,000 because they were God's priests of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Zebulon were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000 and this I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number of all nations kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb and all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God that's going back to when we studied in Revelation earlier chapters of the four beasts and the elders that were surrounding the throne of God saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever amen in verse 13, and one of the elders answered, saying unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, they are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are going before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into living fountains of, water and of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. So that's the, uh, uh, con that's the text for chapter 17. Go back with me to verse one and we'll cover the first two verses. 
And after these things, after the things we've studied in chapter six about the opening of the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth seal, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, beholding, holding, excuse me, the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor in the sea, nor on any tree. Daniel 7 and Revelation 9 also speak to themes that are covered here in verse 1. So chapter 7 begins with, and after what we have seen, and after the vision of the things of the sixth seal, it seems that the sixth seal has not occurred yet, and the destruction hasn't begun as I covered. And so he writes, I saw four angels. And we're again asked, are these literal angels? Of course, many people say they were angels. They were heavenly creations and God's economy from heaven. But remember, an angel can be a messenger. It could have been four of anything or anyone. It could have been literal anthropomorphic angels that we speak of and talk about. It could be angels as how they were created, or it could have been something different holding them back. The book of Revelation speaks in apocryphal, mystical language. We don't necessarily have the liberty to always apply liter literalness to everything it says. I, I can't say what the angels are, but I think they're representatives of heaven that have the power to do what they're doing. And uh, they're standing at the very Hebraic language, four corners of the earth. Now, there's great criticism among biblical uh, higher critics that there's no four corners of the earth. This is uh, ridiculous because we live on a globe. And, and so the Jews did believe that God laid out their existence on a plane. And so uh, there are Christians today who would strongly fight against what I'm telling you. They would say, no, we have a perfect description of God about everything within the cosmos. But I still think that the Jews would speak according to what their knowledge was of things. And their knowledge was God rolled out the things on the plane and they saw there being four corners like a sheet and that they were living on that plane. Does it make them wrong in writing scripture? No, it just didn't make them astronomers, you know? And, and we want the Bible to give us this perfection, but I think that this is plain. They, they, the four corners were the four corners to a Jew. Um, having a north, a south, a east, and a west. And there's a lot of uh, hypothecation as to how to justify this in a different way. Today, there's a movement afoot among some Christians who are saying that the Bible is true and the earth isn't round. They're saying that the earth now is of a, a, a certain shape just in order to try to make this, uh, this provable. But it's, if we just look at how they saw things, we can't blame them uh, for not having a perfect understanding of all sciences. We look at the creation of the world. It's what, 17 verses in Genesis. God doesn't give us an exhaustive uh, accounting of how he does things. It's not there. It's not a scientific book. If it was, it would be 40 million uh, miles thick, you know? And, and so he gives us what we need to know and we don't need to rely on it to be a science book. We rely on what it is teaching us in spiritual principles. So it was a common method. The Hebrews spoke of the earth as we do. Uh, uh, we talk about the sun rising and setting today, don't we? The sun has rise, uh, the sunrise, the sunset, but the sun doesn't do either. The sun's in the middle. We're heliotropic and, and we revolve around it. We're the ones turning, the sun's not, but we still will use verbiage like the sun is rising and the sun is setting. And the Jews would talk in these types of terms when they were talking. It was, uh, they weren't aiming at scientific exactness. In other words, the point of uh, verse one is to depict a time of peace and absolute quiet before the destruction. We have like the winds behind the four angels, blowing behind, blowing their hair up, but it's not getting past them to hit the earth. And it's, it's, it's very, uh, it's full of imagery here. And as soon as they let that go, the seventh seal, which we're gonna cover in a few weeks, will be unleashed upon the uh, land. Uh, many people suggest that seals one through six took place on Jerusalem. And that since then, verse chapter seven, we are living in that period. And that this is a time of peace where God is gathering up his elect 
from the 12 tribes. It has to be from the 12 tribes because that's what Revelation says. And he's putting the mark on their foreheads so they'll be protected and the 144,000 will not be harmed when the uh, angels unleash the winds upon the earth. So futurists, some futurists suggest that we're in that window of chapter seven. Chapters one through six came upon Jerusalem. Chapter seven is a quiet period. And chapter eight is going to be the wrapping up of this world where everything is destroyed. That's the futurist view. Profound quiet, any way you're looking at it. Um, we can spend all day trying to figure out what this wind is uh, representing, uh, or we can use the Bible to interpret what the wind can represent. Part of the problem is the wind in scripture, and we always try to do this. We take what Revelation says, and we look at the scripture and say, how does the Bible describe this thing in Revelation? Part of the problem with wind in scripture is it's often, it's pneuma, it's always pneuma in the Greek, in the Septuagint translation or in the Greek translation, wind is always pneuma. And it is used for a wind blowing through the trees to the breath of God going into Adam's nostrils. Wind is wind, pneuma is pneuma. And so the problem of trying to define what Revelation is talking about by the scripture is that the wind can be something that destroys or the wind can be something that gives life. Uh, the wind can be from God's nostril, mouth, uh, anthropomorphically speaking, or the wind can be from the heavens just blowing around, you know? And even Jesus appeals to, you know, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. It goes where it wants. We can see its effects, but we can't direct where it's going to go. So context is key time and time again. Because we are talking about destruction here and these four angels holding off the wind, and if they don't hold off the wind, then the sea and the earth and the trees will be hurt. Then we know that this wind is a destructive wind and we can then categorize it as that through scripture. <clears throat> Jeremiah 49, 36 uses the symbol of wind as a destructive force. It says, <clears throat> I'm sorry. And upon Elam will I bring the four winds from the four corners of heaven and will scatter them toward all the winds and there shall be no nation whether the outcasts of Elam shall not come, for I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies and before them that seek their life. So there we have the four corners, the four corners of heaven and the four winds coming from that as a destructive force. In Jeremiah 51, we read, I will raise up against Babylon a destroying wind um, and will send unto Babylon farmers and they shall fan her and shall empty her hand. So the angels holding back the destruction in Revelation chapter seven, verse two, uh, verse one, are uh, holding back a destructive wind in my estimation. Verse two, and I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. So a fourth, a fifth angel shows up on scene now. John sees it and says, this is what I saw. He came from the east and evidently this angel had the power to direct the others. And the messenger is said to have the seal of the living God uh, coming there from the east. So uh, we could read him having the seal in two ways. I don't know how you read it, but one way is to say that that angel had the seal of the living God upon him. Or we could read it as most scholars do when I consulted them, that that angel had the seal in his hand, the stamp, the mark maker, whatever it was in his hand to go. So you can read it even having the seal of the living God. It could be applied to him. The Greek doesn't tell us which way, it, what it means. So it could be applying to him himself had the seal. Coming from the east and having the seal of the living God concurs with the New Testament description of Christ and his return. So you might consider that to be the case. I strongly wonder if that's not the interpretation, but you know, mo no one else I read thinks that. They all think it's an angel who has an actual, like a, a signet ring on his hand, in his hand or on his fingers to seal in the forehead of the 144,000. Again, uh, figuratively speaking, not literally. But you might consider interpreting that as being Christ, who instead of having the seal, he personally had the seal coming from the east. I think it's worth some merit. Um, 
we don't really know what this, let's just say that it wasn't Christ and we go with what most scholars and commentators believe about this passage. We know that seals uh, are used throughout scripture and it's just like when you wrote a letter and you put the wax and you used your signet ring to put your mark and that mark was um, to say this, I endorse this, this is from me. So the seal of God upon someone's forehead would be God saying, this is my son or daughter, this is my child, you know, they are mine. Um, Let's talk about seals and sealing here in scripture for a minute. Going all the way back to Genesis 38 and 18, uh, a seal was used then in a ring engraved with some sort of uh, mark of signification that you would push into something to show, yes, I do stand behind what is here. In 1 Kings, Jezebel wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. So she took his signet ring or mark and sealed things. So perhaps it was more like a stamp, uh, we don't know. Moving forward, these types of seals are all through the Old Testament and Jewish history. You can read about them in Deuteronomy 32 and in Nehemiah 9, Ezra 3, Song of Solomon 8, Isaiah 8, and Jeremiah 22 and 32. So the sealing that the Jews did with their rings was prevalent. Sealing a document, again, uh, equivalent to the signature of an owner of the seal. And there have been actual signet rings found in ancient Egypt where they were the rings of kings that would use them to say, this I do stand by and endorse. It's coming from me. We also know that when a master would take a slave, they would seal that slave in Old Testament times uh, by either marking their skin, like uh, as the Egyptians would sometimes through tattoos, or they would take an owl, A-U-L, and put it in the uh, servant's uh, earlobe and hammer through it and leave that hole. And that would be the mark that was on that servant uh, to show that he belonged to that certain master. And sometimes those uh, awls would be of different shapes to indicate a different type of master. So uh, making a person his. The use of Old Testament seals uh, mentioned in the New Testament only occurs once, and that's when Pilate is asked by the Jews who killed Jesus and the Romans who killed him, hey, we want to put a seal on his grave so that it will be protected. And so uh, Pilate said, okay, you can do it. They, in all probability, took a rope and they s- took clay and they sealed the rope to one end and they put his stamp on that end and then they drew it across the grave and put that rope there and sealed it with that and did the same thing. And it had that seal of Pilate's approval. This cannot be touched, broken by anybody but me. Um, when God is said to have sealed the Redeemer, see, and this is what makes me wonder if this is not the Redeemer in John six twenty seven, the meaning is Jesus has my divine attestation. He is who I have sent. He uh, is mine. He is authorized by me. He is the only one who will come forward on my behalf. Paul speaks of circumcision as a seal, as a mark or indicator of the house of Israel. And, you know, these things are important, but they aren't the actual thing. And we can't get caught up to think that the seals are the actual, the seals are the promise of something that will come. So we don't care that much about the seal. We want to have them, but they don't bear any power. It's, they just represent the actuality of a thing to come. Let me give you a quick, uh, sorry, I know it's hot, but I want to give you a quick uh, idea on that. Um, when you go to, this is extemporaneous, but when you go to the nation of Israel and Paul talks about circumcision being a seal, well, what did that circumcision show? It showed that they had the correct blood, the correct bloodline. So the circumcision itself didn't mean anything. A pagan could go out and circumcise themselves, but if they weren't of the proper bloodline, the seal meant nothing. The sign meant nothing. It was, it, and, and so circumcision doesn't do anything if it isn't connected to blood in ancient Israel. Well, you come to Christianity, it's the same thing. What is the sign or the mark or the identifier? In fact, that's what the word actually means in the Christian world. The identifier of being a Christian is water baptism. It is when someone is buried with Christ, rises to new life, that's the sign, that's the seal, that's the mark upon them. But it doesn't mean anything if that person doesn't really believe they've been saved by the blood. So we have a sign tied to blood again there. And, and, and the reality of the whole thing is, does the person have faith? 
And does the blood have uh, a role in their life? Just like with a Jew, it wasn't so much were you circumcised, but do you have the right bloodline? And we come to that the same thing with weddings. I do marriage ceremony, wedding ceremonies, uh, I used to do often, and they're really ridiculous performances. The reality is the real marital status is the two bloods becoming one, and they create another blood that is of the one blood. You see, so it's always the, the, the ceremony, the ritual, the water baptism, the circumcision, they're just the signs of things. The reality is, are you really of the nation of Israel through your tribe? Are you really a believer in the shed blood of Christ? And in your marital union, have you come together, become one blood and not become two with others? That is the whole mystery behind these things that God gives us, but they don't have that much real meaning when it comes to God's heart and, and, and our hearts. They just have signs. So I just wanted to cover that. So Paul says that circumcision is that. And th but then we start reading some interesting things. Believers are sealed with the Spirit. We start to read now in the, um, in the New Testament. And when it talks about this, we're talking about having God seal his mark upon us, but it's an it's in earnest of what will be later. So what we experience here with God giving us his spirit and experiencing him in relation with him is an earnest money, like a deposit, uh, a layover that they used to do at stores on something that you would then redeem later. It, because someone has been uh, sealed or touched with the mark of the Holy Spirit in their life is not the assurity that they have been there, uh, that they will also redeem the uh, item that has been, uh, there's been a payment made upon. You see, that comes later. So that's why it's called the seal, the mark of something that's expected. Let me give you some uh, passages. John 6, 7 says, labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that meat which endures unto everlasting life endures unto, this is what we're talking about, which the Son of Man shall give you, for him hath God the Father sealed. So Jesus had the promise of God the Father on him, but it wasn't rewarded till he came up from the grave, resurrected. And in that day, Paul says, God says, this is my beloved Son. And so this sealing mentioned here in Revelation 7, being sealed by God to himself, is talking about God giving that mark to people and saying, you are mine, but it's an expectation of the full redemption. Um, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.22, speaking of God, who has sealed us. Now we tend to think of the sealing meaning that's the final deal. It's not any more than marriage or water baptism or circumcision is the final deal. Who has sealed us and given, listen, the earnest of the spirit in our hearts given the earnest of the spirit in our hearts. What that says is, I have sealed you and I've given you a promise that you can have an expectation to be mine in the future, but you are not mine yet, fully. You are in part, but not fully yet. When that's lost, you can get into a lot of theological trouble. The Greek for earnest there of the spirit speaks of that down payment I was making. I used to work at ZCMI when I was working my way through college and they had a, uh, they had a layaway program. And there are all these poor BYU kids, I worked with the one down in Provo, they never had any money. So they'd come in and I wanna put $3 down on that sweater I'm getting for my husband uh, for Christmas and it's January. And they wanna make their layaway payments constantly, constantly, constantly until December comes and on the 24th, they can pay, make the final payment and get it. Well, the seal of the spirit is the earnest of the spirit is the same thing. God has placed it in our heart. He says, you are mine, but it's earnest money. I don't want you just saying, okay, I want you to walk in me now. And it's not, it's, this is what you will do, not you must do. This is what you will do now that you are sealed unto me, okay? So that verse says the earnest of the spirit of our hearts. Ephesians 1.13, speaking of Christ says, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. We agree with all that. We trusted in him. We heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. People wanna know what does it mean to be born again? It means to know that you have been touched by God and he has altered your life and he gives you an expectation 
of the end by the Holy Spirit that's in you. And if you have that, nobody, doesn't matter what religion you go to, if you possess that, that's what you have. It's a gift of God and it cannot be refuted that you have been touched by the Holy Spirit and you are then uh, promised of this expectation. Again, the ceiling here is the Holy Spirit of God. So this phrase I'll come back to in a second. After all these references I just mentioned, we find the rest of them of the use of the term seal or sealed in the book of Revelation. And we just went through the first, uh, sixth chapter where it talks all about the seals and sealed. So um, John 3.3 3 says, he that has received his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. So you're given that by the Holy Spirit and set to that down payment. You say in your heart, God is true. That's a wonderful gift to have. Many people take that and say, it means I'm saved. It means it's done. And it doesn't mean that in the Greek. Now, it may be the case. If you get hit by a car and you're killed the day you're saved, it may mean that. But in reality, it's just the earnest money upon your life for the full redemption later. And Paul uses the term seal in Romans 4.11 and then in 1 Corinthians 9.2. He says, if I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you, for the seal of my apostleship are you in the Lord. What he's saying there is, I am an apostle proven by you. You are walking epistles because I have taught you and you've gone forth in Christ Jesus, showing yourself to have been sealed. So he even uses that term seal in, in reference to himself and his apostleship. But let's return really quickly and we'll wrap it up, I think, with the act of sealing here. Just a minute ago, we read, God has sealed us and given the earnest of the spirit in our hearts. Ask yourself, have I experienced that? What does that look like? I got off the phone call with a man for about 45 minutes the other day. He's been a Christian for 30 years. He has arduously sought the Lord. And he says, I just don't feel it. I've never had feelings about it. I just don't, I just, I'm not overwhelmed with feeling. Everyone talks about, oh, I was this, and I'm just so filled with this feelings. And, and he goes, it, to me, I just, I can't stand it. And he said, even you, Sean, you talked about how wonderful it is. And he says, I just, I just almost uh, turned the TV off when you were saying it, because I just haven't had that experience. I don't feel it. I said, well, let me ask you something. In 30 years, has your mind changed about who God is? Oh, by all means. And in 30 years of study, have you decided that you need to die to your will and live to God's? Oh yeah, definitely. And have you decided at certain times that you wanna do something in your flesh against somebody, but you say, I'm gonna choose to do the right thing because that's what God expects of me. He says, I do that every day. I said, well, that is what we're talking about. You know, some people, they might have the, the feely, the emotional thing, but has God been in you and moved you to be more like him and follow him more. Some people have the miraculous thing. I happen to have it. I'm not sure my wife has had the miraculous thing, but it's, she certainly had the miraculous walk in her life of understanding God more and understanding his ways. I happen to think that the, the reprobates need the aha moment, the big feeling moment, and that the people who are kind of just pretty good people moving along, they have some sin, they don't get as big of an aha moment. It doesn't need them that, to, 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 to reach them. So we read in 2 Timothy 2.19, nevertheless, the fountain of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knows who are his. He knows who are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So there's that, there's that, that follow-up. The Lord knows who are his. Depart from iniquity if you're one of them. And we read Paul in Ephesians 1.13, listen to the full context. In whom we have also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also you have believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, ready, which is the earnest, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. We have the earnest money in us, ready, of the purchased possession, you've been bought with a price, and you have that in you until you are redeemed. 
That's pretty radical. It's good stuff, but it's scriptural. And then in Ephesians 4.30, it says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. And then finally, 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, now to he that has wrought for us the same thing in God, who has also given us the earnest of the Spirit. So as you walk through your life and you, you say things like, I know that God is with me and I know I believe in him and I know he's touched me and I have faith on his son and all these things, but I keep stumbling and failing. Remember, you haven't arrived. He's leading you. You will arrive. He's given you the earnest of his spirit. He's promised uh, the work that I've begun in you, I will not fail in completing. But just know you're not in the immediate fullness of the redemption yet. Now, there are people in our own audience in Milk who would disagree with me and argue theologically on that. They would say, we are in the fullness now. And I say, well, just have someone do something really bad to you and see if you're in the fullness or not. Because uh, I don't think we are. I think we still are growing and learning by the Spirit in our lives. So what does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise? And, and I said this, but we'll wrap it up now. Okay, just stay with me. The wind in the Old Testament Remember I said there's one word for it in the Greek Septuagint, and it's pneuma. The wind in the Old Testament could be used to destroy things. The wind in the Old Testament could be used to give things life. Either way, there's a good thing that the wind did, and there's a bad thing that the wind. Here in Revelation, we're talking about four angels holding back the winds that are going to destroy the earth when God lets them, Right? But we can also see from those New Testament passages I just read that the same wind, the same pneuma, is, is the, the seal of the Holy Spirit upon those who believe. So those who didn't believe and were, were wicked were going to be destroyed by the winds, but those who believed were uh, given the earnest of the Spirit, the wind upon them. It's just like there are people who God, it says in, in uh, Hebrews and in Deuteronomy, God is a consuming fire. That's how it describes him. God is either, he can either warm you and he can guide you and he can give you light or he can destroy you and burn you and cause you suffering. God can give you the wind to destroy your, your home or he can fill your home with his spirit. One way or another, people are going to relate to him in the way that they are. And so with those who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit in their forehead, they are going to be protected from the other type of wind from God that's going to wipe the place out. Now, why does the revelation speak of the forehead? Well, remember, we renew our minds. The Jews had phylacteries, and in those phylacteries that they would put on their forehead uh, was the law of God. And it would say, by the law of God, I am becoming holy to God. So here in the forehead in Revelation, we have this fifth angel saying, don't, don't let the winds go until all these are sealed in their forehead, that they have the mind of God by the Holy Spirit in them. How does that happen? By the living word. By the word we are washed. It is by the living word that we are renewed in our minds. And so it's all symbolic here in Revelation. He says, let them in their minds have that seal of the Holy Spirit, showing they've been renewed in their minds. Don't wipe those out who have that mark. And we'll stop there. Questions, comments, insights. Adam Guyman is first on the list. And I hope you brought a fan. Well, I was just going to say that from what I understand, uh, you're talking about how there's a, it's like a sheet that, like the earth being. That's how the Hebrews saw the earth? Well, uh, could that really, because from what I understand is the, are uh, like when we look out into space, everything that I've seen, it's almost like everything is flat, even though the earth is physically round. I wonder if he means the entire universe because from what I understand and from what I've seen is everything is flat in the universe like that, even though there's different shapes within it. I don't know. That's a deep question. You got to ask a scientist like Dave. He'll be able to answer that completely, but not me. I don't know. John Stephen in the back.
Yeah, back then, didn't they think the world was flat? Yeah. But uh, the mark of Christ is uh, given to us, like Paul says, and that mark is his name. Okay. And it can never be taken away from us. Okay. So breath, in reference to the spirit, is God's power through those angels. And I think they're holding them back by their prayers. Okay. So just something to look at. All right. And over here to Kay, who brought, whose husband brought a bounty of squash from hey, their garden. <laughs> hey, Sean, just for clarification, when you were reading the names of all of the tribes, tribes and you came to Naphtali, it yeah. came out sounding like, a little bit like Nephilim. Will you I think just it did. Clarify, because I didn't want your viewers to. Thank I you. know that you didn't mean that, no. and you would never say that. Right. So no, no Nephilim. Naphtali. <laughs> I have problems with word mix-up sometimes. So thank you for that. Sister. I have one other yes. comment um, about Dan. Yeah. Dan, um, he he took he usurped God's vengeance. Mm and took vengeance on who he considered his enemies. And that was, I think, one of the reasons that uh, God was not really happy with him. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that that's where the term Danites came from because that is vengeance. Ooh, very nice. Thank you, my sister. Okay, is always a wealth of information. Brother Steve. No Steve Watt today? No, Steve Waugh. Ah, okay. I'm, going, I'm playing the straight man. <laughs> All right. Well, um, we were talking about the corners of the earth. I always just think of it as like a map. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, a good it. boy. Good insight. And to Corey. Right. I'm just going to clarify uh -oh. from what we were talking here. It's Naphtali. Right. Naphtali. I don't care about that. Um, <laughs> Ernest. Yes. I really, that's really a good view of that because you always hear the word earnest and you just take it for granted but being purchased with the earnest money right. we're not working no. to heaven we no. are just using our value until we get Ooh, to heaven I love that okay. we're using our value I love that that's very well put so instead of you just have a down down payment on you you got to make up the rest no 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 you are a valued thing that has been purchased now use your value for Christ. I love that. Thank you very much. Yeah, we don't want that idea of uh, working, creeping in here to maintain our place with God. He did it for us. Anything else? All right, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the <coughs> earnest that you put upon us by your Holy Spirit, uh, Christ's name upon us, and that we are yours. We know that by the Spirit dwelling uh, in us. And we pray that we will trust that what you have started, you have also completed. And that we will then walk using the gifts that you've given us according to your will and ways and not our own. That we'll be freed from the bondage of religion and, and works and efforts and free to then love and receive and do as you wish us to. We pray that we will step out of this building today, we'll go out into our week, and we will glean any type of insight that are beneficial to our Christian walk um, and we, when we meet with others and we deal with our children and our families and our difficulties and our spouses or our neighbors, whatever it is, Lord, use us as Christians. Help us to be Christians. We're studying Revelation, and a lot of it is so esoteric and difficult, but the end goal is to be more like you and to walk humbly and contritely with a broken heart and a contrite spirit and to realize that you didn't have to or need to, but you redeemed us as we were and considered us valuable. So help us to do the same, Lord, because you are our God and you are our King. Pray for those who are having difficulty in this life with their jobs and their making ends meet or their mental or psychological state or their physical, people who are suffering with emotional difficulty, who have relationship problems, who are constantly in and out of relationships that don't work. We pray that they will find the right person if that's your will, and they'll be able to settle down and, and, um, and live to you. We pray for uh, John, recovery from a recent stroke. He's a paralytic who loves you 
and Aldo, give him strength and his family as they are leaving the religion of their youth and they're learning what it means to have a relationship with you. We pray for Amanda to surrender her addictions and lay her burdens at the foot of the cross. We pray for all those who struggle with addictions. It's, so, it's just ubiquitous in this day and age with our younger people, especially even some of the old. And we just pray you'll help people who are turning to addictions to turn to you and that they can be free in you. And then we finally pray for Diana, our sister, who's recovering from great illness, was hospitalized in intensive care, that she'll be healed and comforted in all the ways before her. Bless our sister who is uh, diagnosed with cancer and uh, the treatment that she's received will be effective. And we just pray for these things, Lord, trusting in you in all ways. In Jesus' name, amen.